in the year 2000 at the Summer Olympic Games, there was a triple jumper who won the gold medal from Great Britain. His name, oddly enough, was Jonathan Edwards. Uh, of course, my favorite theologian from America was Jonathan Edwards, who died in 1758. Anyway, this is 2000. Jonathan Edwards, the son of a pastor who, in the course of winning the a gold medal in the triple jump, and by the way, he established a world record in 1995 that still has not been broken. Talked about his faith in Christ and how the Lord had energized him and taught him and nurtured him, and I just was thrilled with it. And then seven years later, he, I read an interview that he gave on the Richard Dawkins Foundation website. Richard Dawkins, one of the new atheists, and he admitted that the Bible verses that he used to quote when competing were really just a type of sports psychology dressed in religious clothing that boosted his confidence, that gave him a sense of higher purpose and divine assistance. He wrote in that blog post, I was always dismissive of sports psychology when I was competing, but I now realize that my belief in God was only that, sports psychology. Believing in something beyond the self can have a hugely beneficial psychological impact, even if the belief is false, close quote. So yeah, he still is living there, heart-rending. So he says, really, this belief in God, in quoting the favorite verse of all athletes, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, was merely sports psychology. Three years ago, an article was released that was based on an academic paper presented by a professor of epidemiology at Harvard, a man named Tyler Vanderwill and his contemporaries for 15 years had followed religious people and their habits and their health habits and their emotional status. And they presented a paper that was distilled down into an article in USA Today that was entitled, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. And in this article, Vanderwill with a journalist by the name of Seneff said that, that religion may be the next or the new miracle drug. The people that go to church, they said weekly, regularly, have a longer lifespan. They have a greater degree of civic responsibility and engagement. They have social, social friends. They are less pessimistic and more optimistic. And that it's just good pragmatically to go to church. I think of the statement by John Adams, our second president, who at various times in his life was a professing Christian or a Unitarian. I think he died a Unitarian, much to my sorrow. But John Adams said this, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for those who do not hold that position. And how Thomas Jefferson, even though he took the New Testament, he cut up every reference to the supernatural, Thomas Jefferson said that the grand experiment called democracy can only be carried out if people are profoundly moral and religious. But see, all, all of these issues, whether it's the sports psychology of a guy that now de denies the faith or whether it's based upon an article on pragmatic health because of church attendance by a professor of epidemiology at Harvard or the statements of John Adams, all those are pragmatic statements. I want to say that as we study the Bible today and we look at it, that we come to the Scripture believing that this is the Word of God. Believing that there is a living God who is eternal and triune in nature and that in the fullness of time, this living God took on 
a path of redemption that was established before time began when he became a man and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and rose victorious over death and is now in heaven and he's poured out the Holy Spirit. And we believe that the only way to be saved is through faith in this living God who is definable and who is living and who is active. And so it's not just a pragmatic, you'll feel good if you do this. It is blazing truth. Oprah Winfrey, an enormously gifted woman, a very sensitive and gracious woman will oftentimes in her interviews look at somebody and say, I really appreciate the, what you're saying because that is your truth. That's just, that's just balderdash philosophically. I mean, there's no your truth and my truth. There is truth and there's non-truth. There's reality and non-reality. That's why in 2 Peter, Peter just says, he's talking about some of the false teaching of his day. And he says this, chapter 1, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly in devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw Jesus perform miracles. We saw the resurrected Christ from the dead. We saw Jesus hanging on a bloody cross. We are eyewitnesses. This isn't my truth. This is truth. Then he says later in the same chapter, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So eyewitnesses and the word is truth. So we, we come to a text today that is well known, but I, we, don't, we don't read it just to be entertained. We read it to Find the heart of God in the flesh. Find purpose and dignity in living here. So, so this, is, this is Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And I'm going to read the same parallel passage out of Mark 10. Hear the word of the Lord. They, they were bringing even infants, see, even infants, to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then the passage in Mark, Mark 10 verse 13 to 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and bless them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of God. So we're going through this section of, of Luke, and, and we, we've looked at two parables that Jesus taught. And the parable was to get in your brain and you couldn't get it out, or it's to get under your skin and it just bothered you until you dealt with it. So he told two parables. One parable, he says, dealt with 
you pray and don't lose heart because he told the story about a widow who went to an unjust judge and she kept, kept bothering him until he said, I don't fear God or like or care for people, but because you're bothering me, I will answer your request. And Jesus is saying, we're not coming to an unjust judge. We're coming to an Abba Father who loves us and who cares for us. So bring your petitions to him. But an ancillary truth is, is this. This widow obviously had no husband, but she had no sons and no brothers to plead her cause. So she had to go to the judge herself. So she was a marginalized person because it was a man's run world. So behold that. Next parable. Parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee full of arrogance and pride. And Jesus told this parable so that people would not trust their self-righteousness and look down on other people. And the Pharisee stood and he gloated and he prayed about how wonderful he was. But the tax collector, Jesus says, sat in the corner, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, and he beat his breast in repentance and shame. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, this man went home justified with God, not the tax collector who was on the religious in crowd and was full of arrogance. And people passed out. But he, so that's in your mind. You got a widow tax collector, a widow tax collector. And, and then a real life application hits the disciples. Little children. Children were marginalized in their culture. They weren't that important. Jesus was busy. He's the teacher. And the disciples, after hearing this stuff, pushed the little children away. And I, and I read that. And one of my, one of my points in this passage is... is the failure of the disciples to connect the dots. Just to, I'll read the Gospels and I'll see how slow to understand the disciples are. And it's infuriating, but it gives me hope because I am slow to understand. How can you hear the master talk about widows and tax collectors and turn around and say, children, get out of here. He's too busy you're, and you're too important. And they connect, get out of here. And, and I, I, I just... I see that and I just say to myself, self, be careful to fight against social classism. In James chapter 2, James gives this very telling statement. He says, let's say you're at worship. And he says, don't show partiality. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man... And shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, please sit here in this good place. While you say to the poor man, go over in the corner, stand in the corner, sit here at my feet. Verse 4, James 2. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Evil thoughts. And I, I look at that and I look at this passage and I say, I've got to fight against that spirit and I've got to connect the dots by the power of the Holy Spirit as I live in the body of Christ. Listen, I need brothers and sisters who are in my life who will say, have you considered this? Have you seen this? Have you done that? And I need a wife who does that. I need good friends who do that because I frequently don't connect the dots. So, so connect the dots. You connect the dots by being vitally involved with people in the body of Christ, in the name of Jesus, as you sit in submission before the Word of God. Number two, 
please note in this passage the urgent desire of the parents to get their kids in the presence of Jesus. This, this is an amazing statement. So these parents, these parents were, were, were going around, and, and this is what they knew about Jesus. He is an untrained man who outthinks the Pharisees and the scribes. He's untrained. The rumor is he's trained to be a carpenter. He is someone who is kind and gracious and approachable. And when he speaks, he speaks with tenderness and authority. And so there's got to be something about this peripatetic traveling rabbi, speaker, this linked with the living God. So I'm going to do everything I can do to get my little child in his arms and let him pray over them before Abba Father. I'm going to do anything I can do to get my child in the presence of this teacher who speaks with authority and who knows the scriptures like nobody I've ever met. That's all they knew. That's all they knew. And yet they were anxious, desirous, motivated to get their kids in his presence. And I, I look at that and I step back. They intuitively understood there was healing and health and refreshment and wholeness in the presence of Jesus. And I'm just there. Listen, if you want the blessing of the living Jesus in your life, get in his presence. If you want your marriage, your parenting, your friendships, your, 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 your life to, be, to have the shalom of God, get in the presence of Jesus and listen to him through the word. You see, that, that's what we need to do. They have this rampaging desire to get in the presence of Jesus. And, and, and what boggles my mind is they had this much knowledge. We have this much knowledge. We, we, he is God in the flesh. He spoke the world into being. And the apostle Paul said, in Jesus, all things hold together. And see, these people had that much understanding. How much more should we run to his presence? Therefore, we can transition now. We're in this COVID environment. It's been crazy. But it's a time that we can rethink structures and rethink what we're doing and rethink what we're about. So I want to say as a granddad and as a dad and as a pastor who loves the children of our church the most, and loves the people, I love being a shepherd, that the most important thing we can do is to get ourselves in the presence of Jesus. So we're going to, in two weeks, start a new schedule. So I want you to hear this. In two weeks, give me two weeks heads up. The, it comes from the worship and education pastors in our church. It comes, we run it by our deacons and elders. So here, here it is. First, a real concern. A real concern I have is that a child can be birthed here and dedicated, dedicated, and go to nursery. And then when they're a certain age, they'll start going to children's church. And then they will go to middle school and then high school and go to college and never, listen, never really worship with their mom and their dad. A lot of our kids are doing that and it breaks my heart. I mean, They'll never sit in a worship service and hear. I love, one of the things I love about what Dustin does is we sing 
often the great hymns of the faith. And Dean does it in the sanctuary. So they, they can go through their life and not sing the great hymns of the faith, not do confessions out loud, not, not sit under the preaching of the Bible from their pastor. I just, that bothers me. So what we're asking you to do is we want you to be two hours every Sunday Christians. Um, what we're asking is that we're going to start having nursery, birth through five years of age, but we're asking children to worship with their parents. So new schedule is going to be 9.30, okay? Gives you 30 more minutes to sleep in on Sunday. 9.30 to 10.30, quick break. Then you go to Bible study. And then the second service, or you go to Bible study the first hour, but we're going to have middle school and high school Bible study at 1030. So they worship with their mom and their dad at 930. And that's a real concern. I think we need to worship. The church needs to be the church now more than ever before. In my lifetime, more than ever before, the church has got to be the church. We've got to stand on the authority of Scripture with grace and humility and tears and courage. And we need to be together. We need people in our lives speaking to us, walking with us, praying with us, weeping with us, rejoicing with us. So that, I, I, uh, so just real quick words to dads. Dads, lead out. If you're a dad, lead out. We believe that the Bible teaches that in the church and in the home, dads should be servant leaders. Now, what that involves is, is that, that dads are to be pace setters, I think. And, and we're not asking, I mean, what's, really, it's almost humorous to me. I'll read the qualifications for pastors and elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And basically what Timothy is saying and, and Paul is saying to Titus or Paul is saying to Timothy and Titus is that be faithful in pursuing Jesus Pursue godliness, love people, be peacemakers, and have a good reputation with outsiders. And love your wife. I mean, it's, 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 it's not Herculean things. It's nothing that's going to get you on a Marvel movie with Captain America. It's just normal things. So a pacesetter just means that you're faithfully pursuing the Lord. And also, we believe that the Bible teaches that dads are to be servant leaders. And finally, the men are going, yeah, leaders. Well, don't get too, don't get too excited yet. It's not the leadership of a Saddam Hussein or a Benito Mussolini or whatever. It's the leadership of Jesus, which comes with a big towel and a really big wash basin and dirty feet. Yes, you lead, but you lead by serving. You lead by being gracious and kind. So, so dads lead out in this. Another word I want to say, just, just to people in general, since I'm speaking to people in general today, that's a good thing to do. Um, it's okay to be bored. Amen? <laughs> Happens every Sunday here. So... Um, <laughs> No, seriously, let's say you go to church with your, your children and, and they come home and say, you know, I, I really, man, I didn't like the music. You say, oh, okay, yeah, well, well, let's talk about it. Let's look at the words to the songs. Are, are the words to this song about who Jesus is? Yeah. What he did on the cross? Yeah. Um, his authority in our lives? Yeah. Well, was it 
are ritually pleasing? Do they say, yeah, yeah. One of the people sounded off. That's not the point. We're okay. We're okay. Or you go home and say, sermon was boring. Just boring. And you say, well, was it biblical? Yeah. Was it about the reality of the cross and the shed blood and the forgiveness of sin? Yeah. Was it about following Christ? Yeah. Then we're okay. It's okay to be bored. After this service, one of, the, my elders came, one of the elders came up to me and said, let me encourage you. That sermon was not near as boring as they usually are. So I, thank you, Ned, for that. I appreciate it. Um, but but here, here's my Seize the moment. This is a new day. It's a new day. That's been pushed upon us. We need to be the church. In fact, out of this, I'm praying that God will bring a sweeping movement of the Spirit because we need it. Okay, number three, the response of Jesus. The response of Jesus in Luke 18, 15, it says, he rebuked the disciples when they pushed the children away. And the word rebuke means to sternly speak to. He didn't say, hey, come on, guys, lighten up. I mean, he said, how dare you? How dare you push these little kids away? This is what the kingdom is all about, man. How can you sit through all I've said and still be this thick-headed? Come on. Mark says that he, he was indignant with them, which really means he was ticked off. He was, he was angry. He said, you, you don't, don't ever push little children away. Don't, don't you ever dare do that to little kids. So application statements, I got four of them. Number one, as I look at this passage, I see the incredible dignity of all people. Incredible dignity of all people. There's a little book written 35 years ago called Being Human by Two People Who Are Believers. It's a good, good book. But they talk about in physics, there are something called the organizing principles which controls and directs your life, organizing principles. And they said one of the chief organizing principles in the Christian life with the Christian world in view is this. Men and women and boys and girls are made in the image of God. And our confession of faith that we adopt here says, therefore, they are worthy of respect and Christian love. So, so this passage screams out the dignity of image bearers, be they children or adults. Men and women are made in the image of God. There's a British political science professor who's done some studies, and his name is Stephen Hopgood, and he says this, the world in which global rules were assumed to be secular, universal, and non-negotiable rested on the presumption of a deep worldwide consensus about human rights. But this consensus is illusory. He said the only place you find true human rights is not birth in the Enlightenment, is birth in the Judeo-Christian mindset that says all men and women are made in the image of God. He said without that, you have no human rights. And he goes on, he says, in this day and age, people are saying that, that the China, China is becoming more powerful and the U.S. is waning. And he says his prediction is if that happens, and he's just a political scientist, you will see the death of human rights because the Chinese mindset and their communist understand of life is not about dignity or rights or privileges. It's about the powerful oligarchy. And he said, human rights is birthed in the Judeo-Christian mindset. 
And then he says this, but when it comes to robust philosophical foundations for human rights and dignity from a secular perspective, the building materials are hard to come by. See, we believe men and women are made in the image of God and they are worthy of respect and Christian love. A couple of quotes. So Peter Singer is a professor of ethics at Princeton. Peter Singer, um, well, let me just read what he, what he wrote. He's... This is Princeton, staffed by a bunch of Presbyterians who love the gospel. But anyway, Peter Singer says this. He says, rather than basing human worth on the unique status of men, he argues that beings should be valued according to their capacities and their self-awareness. By his calculation, quote, here's a quote, a weak old baby is not a rational and self-conscious being. And there are many non-human animals whose rationality and self-consciousness and awareness and capacity and so on exceed that of a human baby a week or a month old. Therefore, the life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig or a dog or a chimpanzee. Close quote. That's from his book, Practical Ethics, page 169. That's shocking. Now look, look at the Gospels. And brothers and sisters, we used to stand in the marketplace of ideas in our dorms, in our barracks, in our workplace and say, I, I, I affirm the dignity of all men and women and their worth because men and women and boys and girls are made in the image of God. This passage screams that. Aristotle, we're taught in basic Western civ to love the Greek thinkers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. This is what Aristotle said. Quote, Aristotle said, let there be a law that no deformed child shall ever live. Aristotle. What happened? Jesus happened. <laughs> Jesus happened. This next slide, just throw the next slide up. So my research, and I've tried to get to the bottom of this. That's a burning cross with the Ku Klux Klan. You can take it off. It's so despicable. It makes me want to throw up. So somewhere around 1905 to 1910, the Ku Klux Klan decided to adopt burning a cross in someone's yard or in a city to warn them about don't tread on the supremacy of white rights. And I thought, to me, that, that is like spitting in my face. How a bunch of people who are too cowardly to show their faces would ever adopt a cross as a symbol of, of white supremacy upon which a Jewish teacher who was God in the flesh named Jesus shed his blood and died for men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is beyond comprehension. It just makes me nauseated. It's the most ludicrous thing I've ever, really, I, I can't think of any illustration. There's a movie I saw years ago. I, I don't want to recommend it because I, you know, I forget what movies are like, but I love some of the lines. Just in, it's Old Brother, Where Art Thou? Have you ever seen it? And in the movie, George Clooney, I like George Clooney, talks about a group of people and he says, they're dumber than a bag full of hammers, close quote. I don't know what that means, but I just love the statement. I'm dumber than a bag full of hammers. Let me tell you, those people are dumber than a bag full of hammers. If they think they can use the cross to equate ethnic superiority, I mean, it's just, just it's beyond comprehension. So the scripture screams out the dignity of all 
people. Number two, in this whole area, note Jesus' love for children. In Luke 17, this is what the Lord says. And he says, little ones, and it could refer to new believers or people in general, but I think he's really talking about children. He, he says this, he says, temptations, verse one, to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. That's strong. Jesus says, really, if you're going to cause children to stumble and sin, if you're going to become some type of weirdo about that, it would be better to put a rock around your neck with a chain and jump into the Atlantic Ocean. Just, just do it. Because people that do that will be judged, he's saying, I think, more severely, most severely. He loves children. The prophet Malachi writing 400 years before Jesus was coming, the last word we have from God before the New Testament era says this, Malachi 4, verse 4 says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. And then he says this, and it's a thunderclap. It says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. In other words, he says, Elijah the prophet is going to come, and he came in John the Baptist. And one result of John the Baptist coming is to usher in the reign of the Messiah. And the reign of the Messiah will result in this, in part, the hearts of the fathers will turn to the children, and the hearts of the children will turn to the fathers. I'm going to deal with the children this morning, just the fathers. So the hearts of the fathers will, will turn to the children, men, fathers. Do you know if you're really filled with the Holy Spirit and you have the power of Jesus in your life? Do you love your kids? Do you pray for their welfare? Do you pour out your heart before God for them to do well as they follow Jesus? Do, do you love your kids? See, if you, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus based upon this passage, and you don't care for kids, you don't love kids, they're just not important, I'm not sure you can ever say, I am filled with the Holy Spirit, and you may not even be saved. And, while I'm on a roll, if you're newly married, occasionally I'll meet a couple, and I don't hold back. I tell them what I think. And they'll say, yeah, we're married, but we, we're just, we don't think we're going to bring kids into this world because the world's so screwed up. Baloney. Listen, if you're married and you can have babies, get pregnant. This afternoon, go home, get pregnant. In fact, you may leave right now. Just go, just start, get pregnant. I mean, be fruitful and multiply. This, this stuff about the greenhouse and all this kind of stuff, give me a break. Have godly, have children, train them to love Jesus and send them out as arrows into the culture. Yes. I'm excited. You may not be, but I'm excited. Another thing in this passage, I want you to hear me. Now we can't really hug each other because we've got this COVID junk going on. We got this, we shake hands this way and I don't know. I don't know what your background is. Some of you come from families. My families, we just weren't emotional. We didn't touch. Get over it. Get over it. 
I'm, I'm German by heritage. We don't. I'm, I'm from, you know, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, the, the Icelandic countries where you dress in seal leather, seal blubber all the time. You don't hug. Get old. Jesus touched children, and Jesus shows us how to live. Hug your kids. Embrace them. See, I, I, I hug my kids. I'm already grieving the day when my grandkids don't want me to kiss them. And it's going to happen. I see my son's on the West Coast. I'll see him once every two or three months. Man, I hug him and I kiss him. And he always goes, Dad, don't do that. But he lets me. He lets me. And when I hug him, I say, prayer inside, I say, Lord Jesus, he's yours. She belongs to you. Work in their heart. Man, touch your kids. I think your home should be hug zones. Hug zones. Thirdly, I read this passage, brothers and sisters of this church, we should pant regarding generational legacies. Review in Jeremiah 32 this week. Twice in Jeremiah 32, the Lord says, These promises are for their children and their children's children, or for them and their children. Twice. I'll teach them to fear the Lord for their own good and the good of their children. I look at Psalm 145. This says, verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And I think we need to be a church that breathes out generational realities. I hope that as people come here, I saw some new people here for the first time, both services, and as they walk among us for a few weeks, they'll say, man, those people love children. Man, they've got all time. I mean, if you, ever go to, if you ever go to VBS here, it's like going to Disney World without Mickey. It's incredible. You, you, these people, they, they have all kinds of children's programs. And they do this. They've got a children's pastor named Steve Tuck who's been here for 28 years. And he's an incredible guy who loves Jesus. He's got a great staff. And we have middle school ministries and high school ministries. We've got a, a, a college ministry called Campus Average that ministers to hundreds of students. And man, they love the next generation. They've got a school, K to 12, that, that they have every five, five days a week there. And it's just pulsating with kids to teach them the reality of Jesus. They love children. May the hearts of the fathers be turned to the children. There's something called a Faustian bargain from literature. And the Faustian bargain is that the devil comes along and says, I'll give you this, 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 and this if you give me your soul. And we live in a culture that's striking a Faustian bargain for the welfare of our kids. It's all about being progressively, upwardly mobile and doing this. If, listen, parents, the devil came to you and said, I'll tell you what, I, I'm going to give you the ability for your child to be an all-state in a sport. I mean, all-state. And they can be able to play an instrument and be in a symphonic orchestra, which is that's fine. And they're going to be able to... Um, 
qualified to go to an incredible elite school on a full scholarship and then go to graduate school. And they're going to be so good looking, they're going to be recruited by the Gerber company at eight, six months and everybody else on down the line to be a, a model. You can have all these things. The only thing you have to do is never mention the name of Jesus to them. I hope you'd say, devil, go to hell and burn forever. And we would say that, but listen, I think sometimes we make Faustian bargains without really knowing it or verbalizing it. I need to be with God's people on the Lord's day. I need to sing and hear and touch and study and think because I'm being pressured all week long by a worldly system that doesn't walk here. But we get involved in this and this and we cut and we cut and we cut and we go and we go and we go. Don't do it. Pant for generational faithfulness. Number four, be faithful to your calling. I look at this, and it's just being faithful. Little children, just be faithful. I, um, we just went through a graduation season that we didn't have because of COVID. But usually we have graduation exercises at college and high school, and you always have speakers come in, and they look at these young graduates, and they say, you're going to change the world. You know what? You're not. I'm sorry, you're not going to change the world. I mean, there's just a bunch of baloney. I mean, it's, it's, but, but you can be faithful to who you are and what God's gifted you to do. You can work on yourself and you can work on your family and you work on your work relationships and, and God may prosper you to work on a state or maybe a national state, but that's beside the point. The issue is I want to be faithful. But that's the whole issue. So, so we have every February something called the Wild Game Banquet. And it's the night when the men get together and bring their friends and they hear the gospel and they eat a lot of food and it's a fun night. And we always try to have a speaker come in who will be appealing and present the work and the reality of Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins. And we pray for people to be saved. Anyway, so about eight years ago, seven years ago, I got, they told me, hey, our speaker in about eight months is going to be David Thompson. Now, some of you are, are, are very young, but David Thompson uh, was, I think, twice the NCAA Basketball Player of the Year in 73 and 74. He led NC State to the NCAA Championship in 1974. Um, this is an incredible round of games. And he went on to be an all-pro. His pro career was cut short because of drug addiction, and the Lord saved him out of that drug addiction. And that was his testimony. But he's in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Bill Walton, you may not know that name. Bill Walton is a color commentator for CBS or one of those networks. And he says that David Thompson is a combination of Michael Jordan, of LeBron James, and Kobe Bryant. Which, and Tracy McGrady, which is unbelievable. I mean, that's, he, he is he was an incredible basketball player. I remember watching him going, unbelievable. Now, so he comes, and I get to spend a couple hours with him, just talking with him. I'm like a little kid, you know, and tell me about this. And he was very gracious. And, and I'm, I'm looking at him, and he's 6'4". I mean, I'm 6'1", I'm, I'm thereabouts. So he's 6'4". I'm, I don't, I'm not looking straight into us, but I'm just slightly looking up. He's not 7'3", or 7'2". He's 6'4". He's all pro. Basketball Hall of Fame. There's not that much difference. <laughs> Until I put my hand right here. It was like grabbing a crowbar. Anyway, so I'm, I'm looking at, at David Thompson, and, and, and then he speaks. And he's, they've got all these kids in front of him, and they've got basketballs that are autographed. And David Thompson says, I'm going to say something to these young guys. He says, you can, do any, you can be anything you want to be athletically. 
just work hard. I want to go, Dave, that's a lie. I'm just, you know, these guys will play intramural ball, maybe, maybe. It's just a lie because you're enormously gifted. See, David Thompson, this is really cool, could stand and jump 44 inches. Try it. Okay? At the height of my athleticism, which wasn't real high, I was 3.8. <laughs> it was pitiful, pitiful. So maybe there's a reason he was all pro and I was all nothing. See? So just understand, be faithful. So, so adults are well-meaning. I mean, you have an adult to go to, an, to a, a lit class and they'll say, you know, in this class of 25 students, there may be a, a Dostoevsky. He wrote Crime and Punishment. The idiot, his best book was Brothers Karamazov. Dostoevsky was just the man. Let me tell you something. There's no Dostoevsky running around here. I don't want to bust your bubble. There's just not. But be faithful. When somebody comes to that, that you know, to a music ed class, there, there may be a Mozart here. Well, you know, Mozart was writing sonatas at five years of age. Show me a five-year-old writing sonatas, and I'll say, hey, maybe, maybe. But, but see, the truth is, be faithful to your calling. Be faithful to what God has called you to be. Be faithful to be a man or a woman of God who sets their face to go forward in the name of Jesus. May God have mercy on us. May we be the church that God's called us to be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today and for your tender mercies in our lives. Thank, thank you for the... Thank you... Thank you that if we want to know how to really live, we just look at Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, that you saw no classism. You saw no ethnic-driven superiority. You saw no misogynistic browbeating. You just loved people. And, and you welcomed little children. I pray we would love little children. I, I just pray that we would love them and care for them in the name of Jesus. And I pray that we would be people who are faithful to our calling as we walk before you. So God bless us, please. Teach us in Jesus' name. Amen.